Exodus chapter 25. While you're turning there, I, I would like to say to the many who were able to be here uh, yesterday who, who responded to the crazy request um, for 5 a.m. family prayer on a Saturday morning. Um, those of you that weren't here, you're like, yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> um, I was humbled, grateful, overwhelmed. Lots of superlatives there. My heart was so deeply touched by the tremendous response. We had a full house yesterday morning at 5 a.m. And people seeking the face of God and praying together. And it was beautiful to me. There is a principle. We won't go there today. There is a principle of seeking the Lord early in the morning. Now, I, I think God hears you anytime. Uh, but there is a principle in the word of God. Of seeking him early in the morning. Before the break of day. Now if that's posing questions. Just talk to me later. I can walk you through. 30, 40, 50, maybe 100 scriptures. That give that principle. There's a lot of principles in the word of God. About that. And so. uh, Thank you for making the sacrifice. Giving up sleeping time. For those of you that sleep at that time. Which is probably many of you. And uh, and being here, it was rich, and I believe the Lord met us here in a great way. And if you're interested, uh, the church will be open next Saturday morning at 4.30 and, uh, for prayer gathering again at 5. And we're just going to believe the Lord to lead us in prayer, where He wants to take us and what He wants to do in these valleys. The beautiful thing about prayer early in the morning on a Saturday at 5 a.m. is usually by the time we're done, you still got your whole day ahead of you if you got plans. So... Amen. The book of Exodus, chapter number 25. Exodus 25. And I want to give you context before we read. Moses is on the mountain. He's gone up to the mountain. The Lord had called him up in chapter 24. And the glory of the Lord abode on top of Mount Sinai for six days. We read that in Exodus 24 and 16. And so here he is on the mountain with God. The glory of the Lord is on the mountain. Now, if you imagine that you went up to a mountaintop to be with God and the glory of the Lord descends on the mountain, you're probably going to be really, really interested in what God has to say. Is that a fair statement? I got my notepad, God. I'm ready. Let's go. And so here's Moses. He's on the mountain. This is a significant, significant thing that is taking place. So here we are. And for us to get everything that God told Moses, we'd have to read the next 15 chapters of Exodus Breathe a deep sigh of relief. We're not going to read all 15 chapters this morning, but hopefully we'll give you enough to hold on to that by the grace of God, maybe the Lord will prick something in your spirit that you'll go start digging in the Word for yourself. And so we find the Lord revealing some things to Moses here in Exodus 25. Verse number 8, the Lord says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I want you to notice those words of the Lord, that I may dwell among them. It is the desire of God to dwell among his people. This is the why for everything else that came after that he told Moses. This is why I want you to do this, Moses. I want to dwell among the people. 
It's a principle of the word. I want you to hold on to this. I want to dwell among them. So you got to create a sanctuary for me to dwell among them. Watch verse 9. According to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. In, that's the King James English. In plain English, this is what the Lord said to Moses. Moses, what I show you about the way this should be built and the way everything in it should be built, you need to build it exactly the way I tell you. You don't get creative liberty here, Moses. You build it exactly the way I show you and exactly the way I tell you. You can read that if you read through more of Exodus. You'll see that the Lord repeats that a few times. You do it exactly the way I showed you, exactly the way I tell you. Why? I'll tell you why, and we'll understand as we go a little further in this. The Lord was establishing something thousands of years ago that is still prevalent and relevant and essential for today. It's interesting to me if you study the Word of God and you look quickly and you start in the book of Genesis, it only takes one chapter for God to create all of the heaven and the earth, everything in it. One chapter to explain all of that. And by the time you get to the sixth chapter, man has goofed it all up and he's ready to destroy everything. So it didn't take long. But so he does. He destroys the earth by a flood, right? And then the next, by the time you get past Noah and and he's back after the flood there, and then you're introduced to a man named Abraham, and out of 50 chapters of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, 50 chapters in the book of beginnings, you realize that 40 of them are about Abraham and his family. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. One chapter to create all of heaven and the earth and 40 chapters about one man and his family. What in the world's up? I'll tell you what's up. Those 40 chapters are about God's desire for a relationship with mankind. He didn't need to spend a lot of time showing you what he created. You'll get to see that. He was wanting to establish some things about his relationship with mankind. That's why he took 40 chapters in the book of beginnings talking about Abraham and his family. He was showing bondage and bringing them out. and prepare. So we see that. And then we come into Exodus. And in Exodus, we find him bringing them out of bondage. Man goofed it up again. They end up in bondage. So it's the Exodus. He brings them out of Egypt. Egypt, a type of sin and bondage. He brings them out. And so we see that. But then when we get to chapter 25 and Moses is on the mountain, the next 15 chapters, again, one chapter, all of creation. The next 15 chapters, designing and building a tabernacle. Let me get this straight. One chapter for God to create all of the universe. And the universes we don't even know about. And the world and everything in it. And 15 chapters for designing, building, and implementing a single tabernacle. It must be important to God that we recognize and understand the pattern of the tabernacle. And the pattern of all the instruments. There is a pattern that is here that God established in the beginning. Why? Because we read it in the previous verse, that I may dwell among them. That was the purpose of the pattern. So are you ready? Because we're getting ready to move fast. 
Okay? We'll record it in case you missed something. But we're going to move quick. Otherwise, you'll be here a long time. And you guys are like, we don't want to do that. But watch. So the Lord gives Moses this pattern. You can read it in these 15 chapters. Everything from the covering, the different animal skins that are on it. Those are in the verses in the first five or six verses of chapter 25. The animal skins on it to what's inside it, to how it's covered, to how it's laid out, where the, tent, the tents of the children of Israel are around it. He gives them all of this, and it's all centered around the tabernacle. Everything's about the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the center, a place where God would dwell among his people. When they built their houses, their tents, when they had their tents, their tent doors open looking at the tabernacle. All 12 tribes were around the tabernacle. Their tents didn't open away from it. Their tent doors opened so that when they stepped out, they were looking towards where God dwelt. This was the idea, the pattern, the plan of God, that you and I, our first focus would be Him. And so they build this tabernacle. And you, you have this, and you have first what is called... I, I should have... I, I need like all these little displays, but we don't have time. So you have first this, what's called the outer court. In the outer court, you have an altar was the first piece of furniture there. And this furniture is called the altar of sacrifice or the brazen altar. And then you go past the brazen altar and you have what's called the brazen laver. It's also there in the outer court. Again, you can read these 15 chapters. We're not going to do it today. And so you have the brazen laver there in the outer court. And then you go into what is the first enclosed place that is called the holy place. And inside the holy place, you have three pieces of furniture. Right here in the center, you have what's called the altar of incense. All right? And then over here, you have the golden candlestick that gave light in this holy place. And then over here to the right of the altar of incense, you have the table of showbread. Again, it's in there. You're going to have to read. I told you we're going to move quick. Otherwise, we'd read 15 chapters. And so you go from... It's a pattern. Then you go from the holy place, there is a veil. And the veil is there. And this veil, if you go through the veil, inside the veil, there is only one piece of furniture. And there is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was made a certain way. Every piece of furniture was made a certain way. And so the Ark of the Covenant is there. And what this was, this tabernacle was a pattern. It was for man's approach to God. This was God's design for man to approach Him. So it matters to you and I. I want to know God's design for man to approach Him. And so that's what it was. And so we read this. You can study this here in, in Exodus and Leviticus. And so that's why I said. I'm just going to put something. I believe the Lord wants to put something in your spirit. You go dig in the Word of God. And so the priests would go in. And they would go first into the outer court. And in the outer court, they would bring a sacrifice, an offering. It was there that this sacrifice was made. And they would kill a lamb or a bullock. And they would take it. And blood would be shed. And they'd put blood on the horns of the altar, and they would lay the sacrifice on the altar, and it would be consumed with fire. There was fire there on the altar, and it would consume the sacrifice. And, and the high priest would, of course, at this point, would now have, or the priest would have blood all over his hands and himself from the sacrifice. You know, this wasn't an, a nice, neat little slit and cut. It was, this was a, this was a brutal deal. Yeah. They didn't have white lab coats and rubber gloves and rubber boots and a nice hose to spray everything down with. This was a brutal deal. And so they would kill the sacrifice there. And there was a lot of blood being shed. And, and this blood is there. And now the blood is on the priest. And so he would offer this sacrifice. And then the priest would come to the laver. And the laver was a brazen laver. It was made out of beaten brass. And then it was filled with water. And the reason was this beaten brass would act like a mirror. And so the priest, after the sacrifice, would come and would look. 
And the priest would see himself in the brazen laver. It would reflect. And he would not just see himself. He would see himself with blood on him. And he, he would see his visage with blood on his face and on his hands. And the priest would reach and, and begin to wash this blood off in this laver. And by the time he's done washing, he could no longer see himself. Because now the water has turned red because of all the blood being washed in it. And his reflection is no longer gone. The priest now just sees the blood in the laver. And so after he's washed, the priest could then enter into the holy place. And there in the holy place, he would come to the altar of incense. And it's important to know the altar of incense, of course, had fire on it. That's what the incense would burn from. And that fire on the altar of incense came from the altar of sacrifice. You with me? It's a pattern. The fire on the altar of incense came from the altar of sacrifice. By the way, man didn't light that fire. God lit that fire on the altar of sacrifice. And so fire was taken from there. No sacrifice, no worship. So the altar of incense was lit with fire from the altar of sacrifice. The golden candlestick was lit with fire from the altar of sacrifice. The oil there in the golden candlestick. And then you have the table of showbread there. And then once a year, only once a year, you can read it in the book of Hebrews, only once a year, and only the high priest, it was a day of atonement. An atoning for all the sins of Israel. The high priest would go through that process of killing the sacrificial lamb, washing in the laver, entering into the holy place and offering worship. And there, the golden candlestick, and, the, and then entering into, once a year, through the veil, into what is called the holiest of holies, where there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was this base with two cherubims or two angels with their wings inward and their faces looking. And the mercy seat sitting there on top. And the priest would go in with a basin of blood, a bowl of blood. He would walk in and even in the holy place he'd be putting blood on all of those things. But he would enter into that once a year for the atoning of the sins of the children of Israel. He would enter into the holiest of holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It's a pattern. It's a pattern. He would sprinkle, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And if the high priest had done everything according to the plan and the direction and the pattern of God, then what would happen is the glory of the Lord would come down. In the Hebrew, they call it the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory of God would come down and dwell between the cherubims and hover over the mercy seat. Now, it's an interesting thing about the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark were three things. You find inside Aaron's rod that miraculously budded. You find in there a bowl of manna to remind them of God's provision. But you also find in there the tables of the law. But there was a mercy seat between the law and where the glory of the Lord come down. And you see, there's sin. We have to be judged for sin. But the glory of the Lord would come down. And when the blood was on the mercy seat... The glory of God stopped at the mercy seat. The glory of God never went to the law. And rather than judge the people according to the law and kill them for their sin, it would be the day of atonement. And when the blood was on the mercy seat, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the high priest there would recognize our sins have been atoned. They've been pushed forward one more year. 
And the high priest had this robe that was made a certain way. And around the bottom, it had a pomegranate and a bell and a pomegranate and a bell and a pomegranate and a bell. And by the way, when all of this was happening, all of the leaders of the tribes and the families were standing in the door of their own tents, looking at the tabernacle and waiting. They knew what was going on inside, but they couldn't see it. But they were waiting. Why were they waiting? Because their lives weighed in the balance. This is a day of atonement. Are our sins going to be pushed forward one more year? Or will judgment pass through the camp for the sins of this past year? And they're waiting in the door of their tents. The head of home standing there looking, waiting, and listening, and listening, and listening. Not seeing, but waiting. And the high priest would offer the blood on the ark of the covenant, on the mercy seat. And when the glory of the Lord came down... The presence of God is there inside the holiest of holies. And the high priest would witness it. The high priest would begin to dance. Because he saw and he celebrated. They couldn't see, but the high priest, I don't know what it looked like. I didn't see it either. I, don't, I just imagine the high priest, hi, whatever it looked like, he started dancing. And you know what? Now imagine, he starts dancing because their sins have pushed forward. He's in the presence of God. The glory of the Lord has come down. And he starts dancing. And nobody can see him. Maybe that's where they got that idea. Dance like nobody's watching. I don't know. But he's in there dancing. He's rejoicing. And they couldn't see him. But those tents that were closest to the tabernacle, they were listening. And all of a sudden, somebody's like, I hear the bells. He's dancing. The Lord has accepted the sacrifice. The Lord has accepted the blood. And a shout would begin to go up throughout the children of Israel. And it would start closest to the tabernacle. And it would begin to ripple back all the way around the tabernacle as one began to shout and the people behind them recognized. And that sound would ripple out because the dancing of the priests and the bells and they knew the atoning blood of the Lamb has been accepted. The glory of God has come. The priest's offering has been accepted. Our sins have been pushed forward one year. It was a pattern. It was man's approach to God. Now, so we got this beautiful pattern. Thank God we don't do that anymore. Can you imagine if we got together today and said, who brought the, who brought the lamb today? Uh, I'll tell you this. Sacrifice still matters. Sacrifice still matters. We don't bring a lamb anymore. But sacrifice still matters. You can read. It's an interesting read to me when you read about Babylon taking things from the children of Israel. And they went in and they spoiled. And they took all the gold and all the silver. It's, it's, I remember the first time I ever read it. I was like, what? I mean, I get them taking all the cups of gold and the cups of silver and all that stuff. But it says, and they took 29 knives. A knife collector among the Babylons. What, what, what's going on? How come they got knife collectors? Well, you read, I dug in a little further. What happened is the reason that those 29 knives were the knives that the priest used for sacrifice. So the God of this world understood if I take the things that they can use for sacrifice, I can keep them from getting in right relationship. The adversary always looks for ways to take away sacrifice. Why don't you just go the easy way? Why don't you look for the easy route? You don't need no sacrifice. Sacrifice always matters to God.
Side note. So, this is man's approach to God. God has an approach to man. And we see it in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you know this, but I want you to see it. It's a pattern. It's a pattern for God to dwell among His people. God approached to man. He came through the tabernacle. The Lord Jesus Christ came through the tabernacle to get to mankind. I'm going to show you. John chapter 1, we see verse 1. In the beginning, that's the beginning of time as we know it. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. doesn't say the Word was a form of God or a part of God. The Word was God, John 1 and 1. You read through all those 13, 14 verses, you get to verse 14, and it says, And the Word, or God, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His, what? Glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full, not part of, full of grace and truth. Now watch. Remember the priest would put blood there? The glory of the Lord would descend? Jesus Christ, we beheld His glory. We see the glory of God come. You understand the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And so when the glory of God came, Jesus Christ came in the glory of God. God was, 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh. And so the glory of God comes. And then Jesus passes through the veil. You with me? That's why Hebrews called it the veil of his flesh. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent in two. The veil represented his flesh. He came. Now we saw man's approach to God. This is God's approach to man. This is why the pattern matters, Moses. This is why you can't change anything. This is why you got to make it exactly the way I tell you, Moses. My glory is going to come back through that. And I need the children of Israel to recognize when I come. So the glory of the Lord comes on the ark. He passes through the veil. The glory robed himself in flesh. The veil. And dwelt among us. Remember what he told Moses? That I can dwell among my people. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But he didn't stop there. Now he's in the holy place. Isn't it any wonder John made all of the statements about God and the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, John it is that made all of the I am statements, right? Moses, when he's getting ready to go back to Egypt under the instruction of the Lord to deliver Israel, you know, God, who do I tell them to send me? How are they going to believe me? And the Lord says, of course, to Moses, tell them I am, that I am has sent you. And so then you read John's gospel, and John is constantly recognizing and drawing out the times where Jesus is saying, I am, I am, I am. And the the religious leaders had issue with that. They're like, he's making himself God. Well, he's not making himself God. He made himself God. He's God manifested in the flesh. That's why Jesus is telling the religious leaders one day, he said, if you were the children of Abraham, you'd do the works of Abraham, John chapter 8. If you were the children of Abraham, you'd do the works of Abraham, but you'd do the works of your father, the devil. Yeah, well, they didn't like that at all. And he's telling them, if Abraham were your father, you'd believe me because before Abraham was. You know, he's talking to them about this. They're like, you know, he said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see it. Again, read John chapter 8. He said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see it. 
Now these religious leaders are like, <clears throat> are you even 30 years or 40 years old? And our, our father Abraham is dead and buried, and you say he saw you? What are you, what are you talking about? And Jesus makes this statement. He says, I say to you, before Abraham was. This was Jesus talking. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, they had an issue with that. Because if he was right, and he was. Then the one standing before them was the one true living God. The Messiah that they were waiting on. And they just couldn't believe he was. Because can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so, but you find in John's gospel, this said, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Oh, look in the tabernacle, the holy place, the showbread. You look in another place. Remember this golden candlestick over here? I am the light of the world. You read all the I am statements in John, you'll see Jesus there in the holy place in all of his I am statements. And then we see Jesus. You know this. Remember, Jesus, six months younger than John the Baptist, but his cousin. Right? He comes to his cousin one day. I mean, they grew up together. I don't know how much time they spent together growing up, but they knew each other. I mean... Before Jesus was born, Mary went and hung out at Elizabeth's house for several months. They had to have some relationship. John the Baptist knew Jesus. They knew each other. They were cousins. But one day, John's out there baptizing people in Jordan, and Jesus comes. You know this story, right? Jesus comes. He's walking. And John the Baptist looks up and says, oh, hey, cousin. Is that what he said? No, something happened. He got revelation that day. And he looks. And John, who's been preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And he's saying, there's one coming after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And John's looking, and he doesn't look and say, oh, it's my cousin. John looks, and all of a sudden, revelation is given to him. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes to him, and he comes to John the Baptist, and he says, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, you need to baptize me. I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus makes this statement. Read it in John. He says, suffer it to fulfill all righteousness. What? I'll tell you what's happening. Are you following? The glory of the Lord has come. The glory of the Lord has come through the veil and been robed in flesh. He said, I am the light. I am the bread. He comes. Oh, now he's at the brazen laver. Got to put me in the water, John. They know man's approach to God. This is my approach to man. You got to put me in the water, John. Suffer it to fulfill all righteousness. So he goes through the water. There's only one piece of furniture left. What's left? The altar of sacrifice. Doesn't take a whole lot to figure that out, does it? And there we find Jesus, the Lamb of God at Calvary. And he lays his life down. That's why he said to Pilate, 
You don't have the power to take my life. I lay it down. I can take it up again. And Jesus Christ laid his life down at the altar of sacrifice at Calvary. Now, if the story ended there, what a tragic story. But you and I know it didn't end there. He shed blood there. He shed blood there. It was the atoning blood of the Lamb. The atoning blood of the Lamb at the altar. See, it was in the mind of God thousands of years before. Moses, you make it exactly the way I tell you to make it. There's a pattern I want people to see, and they need to understand this pattern because it's not just for you and the children of Israel. It's for all of mankind. It's the way I want man to approach me, and then I'm going to approach man. And so we see him at the altar of sacrifice at Calvary lay down his life. But we know, of course, three days later, he rose again from the dead. But here's the challenge. Oh, thank God. Then everything's fine, right? Everything's good. Now I'm good. Well, if I follow the pattern. There's a, see, now here's, here's the challenge. Jesus said, I am the way. Is that what he said? I am the truth and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The only way for you and I to get to the Father is through Him. Well, how do I do that? Just accept Him. I've been looking for that verse. I haven't found it yet. I mean, I've searched. It doesn't fit a pattern. A pattern that I see repeated multiple places in Scripture that I'm sharing here, but I don't see the accept pattern. Oh, he's got more. And so here he is. Now here's the thing. This high priest walking and entering in, he had to be of the tribe of Levi. Right? And only the high priest, not anybody could do that, so it was pretty exclusive. But remember... Jesus, when he died, the veil was rent. Thus signifying, the writer of Hebrews said, that the way in, ah, there was a way. Thus signifying that the way in, when he died, it signified, hey, you can have access where you could not have access before. Because when he died, the veil was rent in two. So, you understand. See, you got to see that. You, you remember the story of Jesus where he came to the temple and there were money changers and dove sellers and all this stuff and he got mad and he braided this cord and he went in and, and I think he hit some people. I mean, I'm all for the loving, gentle Jesus, but let's also remember there's some things that get him a little angry. And so he started driving people out. You know why he was driving people out? If you study and look... They were in the outer court. They were in what was called the court. This was where the Gentiles could come. This was the place where those that were lame and sick and halt and blind, they could come. They couldn't go any further in because of these infirmities or these impurities. And so what had happened is 
the religious righteous, the, the pious ones that said, you know what, let's just keep them from coming in. We don't want that scum of the earth coming in here to the temple. And so what let's do is let's just set up and start selling some things in here. We'll sell sacrifices and offerings. And what it did, it pushed out those that could have approached to God. And so when Jesus came, he drove them out making a way for them to come back in. You can study it out, it's in there. And so we find, I'm not a Levite. Are you a Levite? No, you're not. I know the answer. Not a single one of us is a Levite. So we got this problem. According to Moses, if I just read Exodus, I, I, I can't go. Aha. Uh-huh. But Jesus, he was not of the tribe of Judah either. He was not a high priest, according to Levi. Was he? No, you read the book of Hebrews. The Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ, a high priest forever. That word forever doesn't mean just all the way into the future. It also means all the way back into the past. Eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? It's in there. Why does this matter? The pattern is why it matters. Here's why it matters. Levites, the Levitical priesthood was under the law. Moses' law. It was under the Mosaic law. That was the Levitical priesthood. But when Jesus Christ died and gave his life, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. So he was the fulfillment of the law. But the high priest Melchizedek, he wasn't a high priest after the law. He was after something that supersedes the law. He was the high priest after the promise. Melchizedek was Abraham's high priest. Abraham was the seed of promise. It was to Abraham that the Lord God said, to your seed and your seed after you, that's where he made all the promises. You inherit that, right? Remember that promise? Your seed will be as the stars of the heaven, the seed of the... Yeah, that promise. Abraham was the seed of promise. Melchizedek was a high priest after promise. Promise supersedes the law because the promise came before the law. That's why I said we're doing the fast version. You've got to go dig after this. But you read the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, he said, because he could swear by no greater, he made an oath by himself. What was he talking about? He was talking about the promise he made to Abraham. All right? Now, why does this matter? And I'm finishing in case you're getting nervous. Here's why it ma- patterns matter. Because he wants to dwell among his people. Here's what he said. Me taking off my coat doesn't mean nothing other than I'm hot. In case you thought, in case you thought that was some pattern thing. Now watch. Okay? Here, come here, Brother Martin. Let me pick on you. So here's Martin. Martin's a sinner. Just like every one of us were. Failed, made mistakes, fallen short, missed the mark. The wages of sin are death. He has no way and no right to approach God through this pattern. Do you understand? He has no right to approach God through this pattern because of sin. He has a price to pay. But the price has been paid. But he wants to approach God. So there's only one way to approach God. It's through the pattern. But how do I go? I don't have the right to go. Right. But he does. He's a high priest. 
He's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's something the high priest of promise can do that the Levite couldn't do. He can take someone with him. And the high priest says, okay, let's go to the altar of sacrifice. Guess what this is called? This is a place of dying. The altar of sacrifice is a place of dying. It's where we read in the word of God in 1 Corinthians where we see that Jesus died for all and he died for all that we might live unto him rather than unto ourselves any longer. And so we come to this altar of sacrifice which is repentance. It's a recognition of my sinful state. It's a recognition that my sin separates me from God. And if I don't get back in right relationship with God, I will die in my sin. And so therefore I know that I must die to myself and God in his great love and mercy reveals to me my sin, not to condemn me, but to convict me so that I'll come to him and say, I can't deliver myself. And so I die to my way. That's called repentance. Repentance. A dying to myself. That's the altar of sacrifice. And once I die to myself, I go. And the next thing, there's this piece of furniture. It's called the brazen laver. But we don't go to a brazen laver anymore. I saw myself in my sin. And so I died to myself. And then he says, now you got to go through the water. That's called the waters of baptism. And we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2 and 38. Acts 10 and 48. Acts 8. Acts 19, 1 through 6. Read all those verses. We're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, the removal of our sins. So we died. That's the altar. We came through the water. That's the baptism. Now we come in to the holy place. And here we begin to fellowship God, the bread of life, the light of the world. We worship the altar of incense. We do that. And then we enter in here to the holiest of holies and the glory of God. That song we were singing. I didn't tell them to sing that song, but it fits. That song we were singing, the glory of the Lord, and it comes, and it no longer dwells on a mercy seat. It no longer dwells on the Ark of the Covenant. But the glory of God would come and dwell in a temple not made with hands. The indwelling Spirit of God. It's the reason that Luke, when he was writing in Luke 24, called it the promise of the Father. Not the promise from the Father, the promise of the Father. I receive the Father into my spirit. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the pattern was established in the mount. You say, man, I don't know about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. You ever read that? Maybe you can throw that up there, Brother Renee. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1, or verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. He's speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I preached unto you, which also you've received, that's important, and wherein you stand. That means you don't just receive it, you stand in it. Okay? Keep going. Notice there was a semicolon there. This is still the same sentence. By which also you are saved. Okay, so you're saved by the gospel. But there's a word after that. If. See, some people want to stop without all that other stuff that comes later. If. You're saved by the gospel. If. You keep in memory. That means continue to practice and live in. Not like, oh, I believed it once. Therefore. 
if you keep it in memory, what I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. See, it's possible to be a believer and it be in vain. People don't like to hear that, but that's the truth of the word of God. I can believe in vain. This is why in Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul said to them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Okay, so unless you believed in vain, verse 3, watch. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, verse 4. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So we see there the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection. We all agree with that, right? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. So how do I keep it in memory? I have to die, be buried, and resurrected. i got to go the way. He's the way. What was it Jesus said? Except you take up your cross and follow me, you, you can't be my disciple. Well, I'd like to believe, but I don't want to follow the cross thing. Could I just believe and be your disciple? No, you got to take up your cross and follow me. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. If you've been carrying your cross for 40 years, something's wrong. He carried the cross and died on it. He allows things to come that are crosses so that we'll die to some things in ourselves. Not so we'll keep carrying them for 40 years. And so, so we see the death, the burial, and the resurrection. What is it? The death is the altar. The burial is the brazen laver, the water. The resurrection is the infilling of His Spirit. The glory of God coming and accepting the sacrifice. This is exactly what Jesus told the disciples to preach in Luke 24 when He said, you know, begin at Jerusalem in my name. Preach these things. The promontory of Jerusalem to the promise of the Father. And then you see Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with the others all standing with him. He wasn't doing some solo act. He was fulfilling the word of God. And guess what? Peter was preaching the pattern of the tabernacle. Read it. He said, repent. They were pricked in their hearts. They realized they had sinned. What do we do? Peter said, here's what you do. Follow the pattern of the tabernacle. Now, he didn't say that. Follow the, but he preached the pattern of the tabernacle. He said to them, you need to repent. Die on the altar. Die to yourself. Turn from the way you were going. Go the right direction. And you need to be baptized. Some of you. No, every one of you. In the, how? In the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins. Oh, and if you do that, then there's a promise. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The indwelling spirit of God. It was Jesus in John 14 saying, I'm with you, but I shall be in you. This is why Jesus, this is why Jesus taught it. And this is why Moses heard on the mountain, Moses, you build it exactly the way I tell you. And you establish, because it's a pattern. And it's a pattern for me to dwell among and do you hear Jesus when he's speaking about the Holy Ghost? I'm with you, but I shall be in you. I'm dwelling. You know him because he dwells with you, Jesus said, but shall be in you. All the way back in Exodus. Would you stand with me this morning? All the way back in Exodus, there was this established pattern by God showing his Desire 
to reconcile with man, to give man a way to approach him, and to reveal the way he would approach man. Why? He wanted Israel to recognize when he came. But they didn't. They didn't. And so, thanks be to God, he turned to us, the Gentiles. And he made a way. He is the way. And if you and I will repent. The word repent doesn't mean snot and slobber and cry. And I mean, it, it can, I guess it can include all of that. Sometimes I'm not opposed to that. I've done that. But the word repent in the Greek is metanoia. It just literally means a change of one's mind. A change of how one thinks. That's repentance. I can't do that on my own. I need the Spirit of God to begin to deal with me. And His Word begins to talk to me. His Word begins to convict my heart. His Word begins to deal with my life actions. And I go, man, I get revelation. I'm like, man, I've been thinking wrong. These things I thought were okay are not okay. I need to, God, forgive me. I want to walk in a way that pleases you. I've been walking this way and it doesn't please you. I want to repent. I want a change of direction, a change of one's mind. Right? In the military about face. Unless you're in England and the UK. In the UK, it's repent. That's what they say. I've been there at the changing of the guard. I've heard them. Repent. It's a change of one's direction, a change of one's mind. I was, I was going away from you, God, but now I'm going towards you. And then once I've genuinely repented, then I submit to the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And he washes away my sins. That labor, that brazen labor. The blood. And when I stand before the throne, and he looks and the accuser points out all my failures. And the judge of all the earth says, I only see blood. No sin, only blood. No sin. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. And then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is the fulfillment of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. And it's His plan for you. And if that spirit which dwelt in Him dwell in you, it will also quicken your mortal bodies, Romans chapter 8. It will make you alive unto Him. Would you talk to the Lord where you are right now? And let His Spirit and His Word begin to etch on your heart and mind. Can we allow the Word of God to speak into our heart? Would we allow it to ride upon the fleshy tables of our heart? Wherever you are in this journey and wherever this is sitting in your spirit, would you openly and honestly before God? For some of you, you've heard all of this before. Maybe for others, maybe this is the first time you've heard it. But would you before God have an honest conversation Say, Lord, I want to receive of your word. Show me. Come on, there's a purpose for the pattern. There's a reason there were 15 chapters laying all that out. And it had to be exactly right. Because the Lord, who is the I am God, who exists in all of time and space, he knew this pattern is going to be the revealing of myself to people and the way in which I'll allow them to come to me, not under the old instruments of the tabernacle anymore, but this pattern of approach whereby I can bring them back into right relationship with me and whereby I can dwell among them. 
This is the purpose of the sanctuary. Not a physical building, but this temple. This temple that is the body that we are. This is why the Apostle Paul said to the church, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? It's the desire of God to dwell within you. A temple, a place of dwelling, so you and I can have daily fellowship with Him. Not at a distance, but close and personal and intimate and real. In the name of Jesus, open our understanding, I pray. Revelation and understanding by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. A quickening of your Word that brings us in right relationship with you, God. You have made the way where there was no way. You have opened the door where I could not open it in my own abilities, Father. I thank you. I thank you. Let it mark my heart. Let it mark my spirit. That it bring us into the fullness of place with you that you intend. In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. We look to you. We humble ourselves before you, God. Search out the scriptures. Let them be searched out in our spirit. That which we've heard and know. Reveal in greater measure that you would be glorified. And that your will would be accomplished. In and through our lives. For the glory of God. For the glory of God, for the glory of God, the working and the operating of your spirit through your people. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Well, you got in about 45 minutes, probably about 12 hours worth of stuff. And if you haven't made this journey, you should. It's a pattern for a purpose. You should. And you're like, well, I, I need more of the word. I need to see more of that. Get with somebody. We'll sit down and we'll walk through the scriptures. Jesus said to the religious of the day, search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. They point to me, they point to me. And there's a way. There's a way that goes, that gives power and life. And hear me, it goes beyond just believing. You understand, I'm not diminishing believing. You understand that this morning. I'm not taking away from believing. We need to believe. Starts there. Got to believe. But believing leads to so much more. This is why. Read Acts chapter 19. That's why the Apostle Paul asked the question. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He wasn't questioning their belief. He was saying there's something more you haven't experienced yet. Read it in Acts chapter 10. The Lord is wanting to reveal himself to somebody in a greater measure. He's not, he's not judging or coming against what you believe to this point. He's just wanting to reveal himself in greater measure. In Acts chapter 10, it starts out. We read of a man named Cornelius. 
Cornelius, the Bible says, feared God with all of his house. He prayed daily. He offered alms. I think it's safe to say he was a believer. Yeah. Probably more devout than many. Faithful of his giving, of his prayer. His prayer was so consistent and faithful. The Bible says that his prayer became a memorial before God. And an angel showed up to Cornelius and had this to say. Cornelius, I need you to send down to Joppa and ask for somebody named Peter. He's going to tell you what you need to do. Read it, it's in there. What? I fear God, I pray, I give alms. I'm a believer. What do you mean to do? What do I need to do? Go get Peter, he'll tell you what you need to do. And so he did. He heard from the Lord. He responded. He was doing everything he knew to that point, but God was wanting to reveal himself greater. There was things he intended for Cornelius and his house to walk in. They weren't walking in yet. And so Cornelius sent men to Joppa, a three days journey. He sent men to Joppa. Those men found Peter. Peter was up on a roof. God was trying to get Peter talked into this whole deal. Peter had some blinders in his own life because of religious tradition. So God had him on a rooftop in a trance. He sees the sheet lowered down with unclean. Oh, no, I'll never read, Lord. That's unclean. I've never touched any clean. Three times this happens. Finally, the Lord's like, I ain't got no more time. You're going to have to figure this out. The sheet lives out, and they're knocking at the door. And the Lord says, there's men at the door. Go with them. Thank God Peter was willing to obey, even if he didn't understand. He knew the voice of God. And so Peter went with those men back. To Cornelius' house. And when he gets there, Cornelius has got his family together. You read this in Acts chapter 10? He's got his family together. And Peter begins to preach the word. He says, I recognize all of a sudden God's not a respecter of persons. He got revelation. He knew what the dream meant now. God's not a respecter of persons, but he's willing to know it. And so he's telling this to Cornelius' house. And while Peter is declaring the word of God to Cornelius' house, something powerful and amazing happens. Here's what happens. The Holy Ghost fell on them. The Holy Ghost fell on them. And they began to speak with other tongues when the Holy Ghost fell on them. And you can read later that the men that were with Peter, the Jews that were with them, said they got the Holy Ghost the same way we did. And it says, how did they know that? Because we heard them speak with tongues. But you read, you look at the end of chapter 10, after they received the Holy Ghost, Peter said something else to them. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? He's like, look, you received the gift of the Holy Ghost. You made it to that point in the tabernacle. But you don't just, the Lord gave it to you on credit. You still got to go through the water. That's my word. I, still got to go through the water in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see Peter, even to Cornelius' family, teaching repentance, baptism in the name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost. In Acts 19... The Apostle Paul, those people were believers and they had already been baptized. They'd already been baptized. And when they heard the Apostle Paul preaching Jesus, they were baptized again in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful today. This is for somebody's. You receive the word of God today. And if the word of God is sort of pricking you and challenging you, like, oh, man, then please search the scriptures. Dig in the word of God. 
come pick at me. Ask me questions. Ask somebody else. Let's dig in the word of God and let's see what the word of God says. Don't take my word. Let's see what the word of God says. And let it reveal itself. He's got great plans for your life. He wants you to walk in the power of his spirit. Don't you want to walk that way? Amen. God bless you.